Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. David Brancaccio has spent his career covering how the economy is changing. He's host of the Marketplace Morning Report, which you hear weekday mornings on WUSF. And he visited the Tampa Bay region a few weeks ago, just before officials trying to slow the spread of coronavirus put a stop to large gatherings of people. I interviewed him in front of a live audience at the Palladium in downtown St. Petersburg as part of the Arresty Speaker Series. Here are some highlights from that conversation. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, we're all glad that, uh, that you've joined us here tonight. And uh, of course, you're here to see the uh, main attraction, who is a voice that I'm sure is familiar to many of you. If you listen to WUSF, he's a longtime uh, reporter in public radio and public television, particularly covering economic issues. Please welcome Mr. David Brancaccio. Wow, people did come. How did that happen? Thank you. How you doing, man? Good. Oh, wait, oh, wait, wait. We're supposed wait. to do Uh-oh. this. Uh-oh. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. Yes. And let's get the elbow bump in there for the Yeah, there you go. Wait, wait, right. shoot, shoot, too. Oh, yeah, shoot. There we go. Okay. okay. All right. So, uh, joking aside, <laughs> uh, you can't really have a, a conversation, David, about uh, the economy right now without talking about coronavirus. Some of those impacts are obvious. We're seeing events canceled. We're seeing uh, sell-off in the, uh, in the stock market. There's talk in Washington about some kind of uh, stimulus package to help. But what I'm wondering from your perspective is what are the uh, impacts of coronavirus, the economic impacts that we're not thinking about that are just as significant? People have been very frustrated in recent weeks because they say that the psychological impact of the virus at some level outweighs the actual medical story. But that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, markets are driven on fear and greed, and we've just switched abruptly. The Sunday afternoon before the mess started, not with the virus, we've been covering the virus since early January, but uh, the mess with the markets, someone said, when's the market going to crash? And I said, it's going to crash. I don't know exactly when. Could be tomorrow. I said, could be six months or two years. I don't know. Could be tomorrow, and it was tomorrow. It's profoundly changing consumer behavior, and we don't have, unfortunately, an easy model of, from the past to draw on to guide us about how does this ultimately play out? How long does it go? That's why you're seeing the storm and drawn on Wall Street right now. It's an unnerving time, but they can't turn off the economy for longer than three weeks. So it's going to be, you know, schools, as you know, are being very prudent and and shutting down their campuses. Uh, And let's say that they do distance learning through the end of the semester. I mean, they can't cancel fall. So, you know, and America can't be turned off till third quarter 2021. So they're either going to knock the wind out of the epidemic by public health interventions so that we will have the hospital beds to deal with what we need to deal with. 
or it'll just become unfortunately ubiquitous. I mean, we also have a primary season that's going on at the very same time. I actually have been doing mixing into the shows little moments of just regular business news so it'll seem reassuring to people that the world of commerce is not completely ground to a halt. There's a $30 billion uh, acquisition the other day in the reinsurance market. And if any of you here is in reinsurance, I'm sure it's super fascinating to you. But the fact is, normally I wouldn't have done that story because it's very wholesale and arcane. But I, I mentioned on the air, I said, I'm doing this merger because I want you to know that the wheels of commerce are still turning somewhere. And speaking of the wheels of commerce, uh, that actually uh, goes along with one of the, the, the other initiatives that you're working on on Marketplace right now. This is something called uh, Econ Extra Credit. Yeah. And it's... Uh, Kind of like a, sort of like a book club, but with an economic textbook. Yeah, I just wanted to do this. I've wanted to do it for a couple of years. And one of our, my colleagues had the bright idea of do it as a New Year's resolution. I can get you the internet address for it. Actually, there's a big green button on the front page of Marketplace that gets you there. You sign up for my little newsletter, and you can get the link. It's a free, open source, econ intro textbook. And, okay, you all took it. I took it, too. It's fascinating to reread and to bone up. There's nothing more dangerous than a person then who partly remembers their Econ 101. Um, we have a lot of politicians who very imperfectly remember their Econ 101. The tagline for the project that created this Econ textbook is economics like the last 20 years happened. And it's really updated. It has a lot of stuff about income inequality. It has a lot of stuff about climate change in it. Um, it's got Adam Smith and the invisible hand. Um, it has delightful things that help offset some of the dreary graphs. Uh, delightful things like, I suddenly found myself in this textbook, chapter five, reading about the economics of pirates, pirates in the 18th century. Why? Well, you know, these lawless, larcenist, murderous people actually were quite well behaved on their own stolen ships. They had employment contracts, the, the kind of a constitution, a, a written set of rules for the sh stolen ship that specified that the crew was entitled to fresh food, that the crew was entitled to a remarkably flat profit-sharing arrangement from any plunder that they got. Why? Because pirates are nice? No, because if it was seen as an unfair working environment, these hard cases who were pirates would just steal the plunder and run off. So I found the economist as the expert on piracy. He's cited in this textbook. He's at George Mason University, and we did an interview. So we're reading a chapter a week. You can join in now, just because if you haven't started along with us, you can catch up. Um, it'd be nice for you to have it downloaded into your digital device. It's free if you download it. Um, and it's a really good refresher about how a lot of stuff works. And I'm this and each week on the air we're doing a little something. And this week it's among the lessons that I've drawn from my reading that help us understand the coronavirus. And there's many every which way in this book, but I just flag one of them. There's a lot of discussion from early in this textbook about public goods, public bads, and uh, private goods. And there are many in our country who regard health insurance as a private good. It's like a yacht. If you can afford it, you can have one. If somebody can't afford it, not my problem. You can't afford a yacht either. 
And if you have a health insurance policy, it's yours. You don't share it with somebody. They can't leech off you, um, unless you have a kid who's under 26 years old. Maybe they could, but uh, private good. However, the coronavirus is underscoring for many healthcare professionals and advocates the fact it is also very much a public good. When more people have health insurance in America, everybody benefits, whether or not they have health insurance or not. If people have better access to getting examined, to getting tests, to getting um, care, you can just see that everybody um, benefits. So it's this terrible reason that we're reflecting on this, but a crucial policy thing to be reflecting on during this difficult time. You saw that the insurance companies are increasingly moving to pay for the coronavirus testing and, and so forth. But um, I've been pretty diligent. And another reason I want to mention this Econ Extra Credit project is the following. Where in the world do I have time to read this 1,200-page textbook? I originally was going to read it throughout the year. 12 chapters, it was going to be 12 months. That was my pitch to Marketplace. My colleagues said, no, you need to do it more intensely because people will, their attention may wane, so do it a chapter a week. How could I? Look what's going on, you know, right now. All you do is take your time out of your social media dawdling. That's all you do. You just stop scrolling with a little bit of drool coming out of the side of my mouth at Instagram, and you got 20 minutes. You knock off a little bit of the... Um, of Facebook and a few other things, and I have the 35 minutes a day that I need to read this. And that's a lesson to us all. Um, and I do want to say this to us, um, to this group, because I've been reflecting on it. If what's going on right now for these tragic reasons means that we're going to spend two or three weeks more alone than we normally are, or hold up a little bit more than we normally are. We want to stay connected with our loved ones. We don't want them to feel isolated. It's our duty to stay connected. But it's also, if we're not actually sick, it's a gift. So I'm hoping everybody, if they're stuck at home doing work at home, or if they're stuck at home recuperating, that we can, if we have the strength, we can do something that uh, learn something new or read something we wouldn't have normally or just try something. I think that it's also in a bizarre, perverse way a bit of a resource that's being handed to us if we don't get sick. But we need as a show, and we're going to be exploring this, we're doing this with just out of our, doing this for free. I mean, we're just, whatever the, I'm not, it's not requiring extra resources other than me being more assiduous and my producers helping me to do those interviews. But there's something here uh, in which we could take the ideas that we're learning in this and bring them to different levels of learners. You're listening to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. Today, we're bringing you an interview with David Brancaccio, host of the Marketplace Morning Report, recorded a few weeks ago at the Palladium in downtown St. Petersburg. Our conversation continues in just a moment. This is Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. Let's get back to my conversation with David Brancaccio, recorded a few weeks ago at the Palladium in downtown St. Petersburg. Well, we're here in Florida, of course, and I bet there are some, probably some snowbirds in the audience, maybe people who come down here for the winter. There's one. Hi. Um, another project that you worked on recently um, looks at the issue of, of the aging population in the United States 
and financial fraud. And there were a couple of studies that you cited uh, in your reporting um, that, it, that runs up into the billions of dollars. Yeah. And I wonder what, what for you, we can get into some of the specifics of what you found in your reporting, but I wonder what was the, what was the spark, what was the germ for you to, to, to delve into that topic? Thanks, Bradley. I appreciate you asking that. It, it's not, I thought, I got, I, I reflected on why did I, we, I spent almost two years reporting a project called Brains and Losses. Um, it was about uh, in, increased financial vulnerability in the healthy aging brain. And some of it was uh, my father and my father-in-law are precisely the same age, live in different parts of the country. Both of them had resisted scams. My father-in-law, who's 85, is a judge, a retired judge in Virginia, and has seen a lot in his time. And they tried to get him with the tech support scam. And my dad is from Brooklyn and is a retired professor of American literature. And he also got drawn into a scam but figured it out. And so I was thinking about how we interact with the next generation and how we can protect people. And I ran into a researcher at Cornell Weill Medical Center in uh, New York who's got the data. And for people suffering from cognitive decline, obviously people need to be watched closely because they become more vulnerable to scammers. P.S. also family scammers, not just phone calls from many continents away. Um, that's another giant issue that we dealt with. But people who test as he put it, this doctor, up and down as absolutely fine. Fool these doctors all the time by giving away the farm. And so society is desperate for markers as to who might be more vulnerable because the, the outward signs are not there. So among the things that they find interesting are drawn from brain scans of people, living people. There's a researcher in, uh, he's done work at Cornell and now he's at McGill University up in Montreal. It's hard to find scam victims because there's so much, sadly, shame that comes with that. And who wants to talk about it? Um, also, I learned people who've fallen victim to scams are among the things that deter them from speaking about it is they're afraid that they'll be judged incompetent and their kids will get their hooks in their business, right? And it's probably a legitimate concern in many cases. So uh, the researcher found 13 people who had resisted a scam, like my father, my father-in-law, my father, and 13 demographically identical people, same age, income, gender, who had fallen victim to scams and looked at their brain, and they were different. They were different, and I'm not. I'm a reporter. I'm not a doctor, and I don't even play one on the radio. But um, it's around a region of the brain called the insula, that's Latin for island. And it, I think, if I have this right, it's the part of the brain that's your gut instinct. It's your hunch. It's the thing they tell you to listen to when it says, don't walk down that alley. It's just something's off. That loses some of its sensitivity in some people when they get older. 
not everybody. Good news is that wisdom counts. What is wisdom? It's a lot about life experience. If you've seen it all and you've spent some time in this world, that counts and can counteract this. It is also true young people get scammed all the time, different types of scams. Younger people fall victim, for instance, to the IRS scam more often than older people. Why? Because the 21-year-old college student where mom has done her tax returns for the past three years may not know the IRS never calls. If you've done your 65th tax return, you know they don't call. So there's that. But I was surprised. I saw the slides they use, and it wiped the smugness off my face if I had any. They were photographs, drawings of benign, friendly faces and drawings of equivalent but ever so slightly menacing faces. Young people spot the menacing people right away. Older people have a hard time. So I wrote about this for months as we were preparing this series. And I was like, yeah, wow, isn't that terrible? And then I finally saw what the pictures were, and I couldn't tell them apart. If this doesn't scare the daylights out of you, nothing will. So we had a hard time finding people to talk to, and there's no radio without people talking to us. But I was able to find a terrible story down here in Naples, I think it was. It'll come to me. 93-year-old man is out walking with his cane and a fetching 30-something-year-old person befriends him and, you know, one thing leads to another and he's given away half his life savings. That guy's kids were interesting. One was a former prosecutor, one is a law professor, and they're really working hard to convince dad that she's up to no good. There was a very proactive police detective in the town who really liked the victim. And he just went above and beyond, figured out that this person has a long rap sheet uh, as a scammer. He still wouldn't listen to the kids, but they got it to court anyway. They got half restitution, which is rare, but he died three months later, and they don't know if it's because of the uh, stress. I learned, though, in the reporting of this, and we highlighted it, that Florida has interesting new rules that if you or a family member feels there might be a scam, you can freeze the assets. You go to a courthouse, fill out some papers. It doesn't get a court review at the moment of the freeze. It's pending a later court review. And it's an interesting tool that you have here that not all states have. But the scary story I do have to tell you, because of the brave person who shared her story with our listeners, she's an amazing woman who's a nurse. And she's still a substitute school nurse, five days a week in the public schools. And when I talked, I think she's turned 80 now, but she was 79 during the reporting. And she just gets around. She does Pilates. She drives better than I do. She's just with it. And I said this to one of the gerontologists, and he goes, oh, great, because you have an MD and you're skilled in evaluating people's competency. I go, okay, I get it, I get it. But if you met her, she's not the person that you'd be worried about. And that's the point of the series. What happens to her? She does what my dad resisted doing. She signed up for the tech support. The typical loss in tech support is 600 bucks. You give them a credit card and they don't keep the viruses out of your computer. Not good, not the worst thing that ever happened, unless all you have to your name is $300. She did that, but the way I pieced it together, it's most likely the following happened. Months went by. She gets a call out of the blue. Long forgot the fact that she gave them money for the tech support. They go, hey, listen, you didn't get much service for that tech support. She goes, I didn't, actually. She goes, you're due a refund. Can we have your bank account information? 
She watched as they drained or appeared to drain. You can ask me later how you appear to drain. I figured it out. 30 grand out of an account. She freaked out. You would. And when, as soon as you have the emotional reaction, all bets are off for rationality. They coerced her. That, well, give all your money back. You can get the money back if you play along. Over two weeks, she went to Target and Walmart and bought $1,000 and $2,000 gift certificates, uh, gift cards, gave them to the scammer. She saved the receipts. The scammer said, throw them out. I have them. $166,000. Plus a $45,000 bank transfer from Bank of America to a bank in Nepal. And you're like, what? Her son is, what? What? Two-thirds of it was she got afraid because the bank account they drained wasn't fully hers. It was a condo account that she managed. You see what the problem is. You would freak out too. She was able to restore the money to the condo account from other assets, but she was out $200,000. And there's just no way you would have thought she was the first person to worry about. So what can we do? Well, the scientists are looking for ways to track this. You in this audience are going to be smarter than younger people. It's just, it depends. Not everybody will have this effect. But what I, one of the things through my interviews that I came up with that I think will be helpful is that there's another conversation that we have to have with the next generation up that it doesn't have a name. I just called it the talk. We know we're supposed to do the living will talk, the advanced directive talk. The doctors bug us about that. That's a thing. We know we're supposed to do a will. We don't, some people, but you're supposed to. The third thing is broaching a conversation if you're the trusted kid or someone else in the family that can be trusted to say, listen, you're great now, but let's look forward to a time when maybe you need help managing your finances. Who do you want to do that? What rules should apply when a person manages it? You can have these things where power of attorney kicks in at a, if you get a certain diagnosis. That awkward talk. So we get a film camera in, we sit, Pat Brancaccio, retired professor at Colby College, my dad down, to have the talk. It's going to be awesome. We'll figure it out how it goes with dad. He didn't want to talk about that stuff. He thought that stuff is private, and he got... He said, I'm not talking about my finances with you, pal. It was great. Uh, we talked around it. We talked about scams. I think it was the presence of the camera. Anyway, brains and losses, if you put it into a search bar or go to Marketplace, it's there. We did an hour special that aired nationwide. We did six pieces for broadcasting that you heard on Marketplace. And there's many other amazing stories. The tagline for, for Marketplace, and by that I mean the whole suite of programs, including the morning report, has been the business show for the rest of us. And what does that mean to you? Business show for the rest of us. We knew right away that we could not be, we started in 1989. There were some in the public radio system that said that public radio doesn't need a business show, that it's somehow boring or that it isn't aligned with public radio values, whatever that means. Boy, were they wrong. Um, but we knew we couldn't be barons. We couldn't be for the in crowd. We couldn't be CNBC. They have no problem selling advertising. They, you know, money grows on trees at CNBC. Money does not grow on trees at Marketplace because they have the right people. If you want to sell a Mercedes-Benz in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey to traders on Wall Street, that is the way to do it. We couldn't be that. That isn't what public radio is. Public radio is an open door. It's about being accessible. One of the things that we need to do better at in America 
is making this whole world of money and economics accessible to all. If you've not grown up in a family where this stuff was discussed, how are you going to learn? And I've done some studies of lottery winners, and you know that it tends to, it can, it can turn out badly. Why? Because lottery, people who play the lottery tend to skew, uh, low, uh, from, be from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. They may not have the culture of money, and when they win, they may not have the apparatus in place to deal with every Tom, Dick, and Harry trying to put their hands in their pockets. I, my operative thing for me is I take the material very seriously. It's fascinating to me. I don't wish to be on any other beat, but I take the material seriously, but I don't take myself seriously. I'm not the one who tries to set himself up as an expert. Um, if I was an expert, I'd be richer. <laughs> so what we tended to do over the years, can I, I'll ask you an embarrassing question. Sure. What's your undergraduate major? My undergraduate degree is in theater and in German studies. You're hired. Thank you. Mine is European history and African studies. I spent a lot of time in sub-Saharan Africa. I have studied economics because I studied the economics of developing countries. But we take people with humanities, liberal arts backgrounds, and place them on the business beat. The part that I might not have predicted that's been nice is all walks of life do listen. We do have a third of the audience that are, really know this stuff. Two-thirds of the audience are just smart, but in some other field. So if you listen to any Marketplace broadcast, there may be something you kind of are the expert already in, but you know a few moments later there'll be something that you didn't know about. And that seems to work in this community of, um, we have research, and it turns out Marketplace listeners have some identifiable characteristics. Some are striving to improve their lives is one of the big component of the Marketplace audience. So that's how we do it. And even in our newsroom, I mean, we have some wonderful expertise in our newsroom, we're great writers, people who really know how to ferret out an investigative story. But we're constantly needing to remind ourselves that when the bond market falls, the yield rises. <laughs> it's counterintuitive, and every time we have to explain it. So that's how Marketplace does it. You know, we do it with storytelling, and, you know, we have some fun with this stuff. Uh, a couple of months ago, a dreary bank merger crosses the wires, and you're like, okay, I guess if you're one of the, if you work for the bank or you're a customer, this will be interesting. It was BB&T of Charlotte and SunTrust? SunTrust of Atlanta. SunTrust of, of Atlanta. And it was interesting, actually, as we pointed out, because it was the first large bank merger since the financial crisis. So, all right, then it was already on my radar. So I said that. What else could I say? There weren't many details, but I noticed something in the press release. It said that they were going to change the name of the bank, but they didn't know to what yet. I was like, okay, that is an opportunity. So um, I thought I had such a, you know, no, it wasn't so clever. I just had an idea. So I mentioned, I read that story, and then I said, I think I should call them Sun T, right? Sun T. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. But I asked the listeners, and I was able to do it in an early time zone, so by the time it got to the West Coast, we had a whole bunch of people pitching in. There's a listeners way better than mine. I think the winner I sent a six-pack to someone who said, BB and the Sunshine Bank. That was the winner. <laughs> so, all right, you know, it's, it's important stuff. I know our wealth is spiraling down today. I know that not all of us have the luxury of a giant 40-year time horizon for it to come back. But, you know, we have been trying to remind people that if you needed your money tomorrow, it shouldn't have been all in stocks. And I know some people are in a bind right now, but 
People who panicked in the last times we've had these, who panicked, lost money. People who didn't panic had less of a chance of losing money. Today's show was produced by Denora Prevost. If you missed part of the conversation or want to listen again, you can find it at WUSFnews.org. That's also where you can subscribe to the Florida Matters podcast. I'm Bradley George. Thanks for listening.